Hello and welcome to the Balanced Garden Podcast. I'm your host, Tiger Lily Raphael, and in this episode, I'm asking what it means to take care of ourselves as we reach the end of January, a month traditionally associated with fearsome resolutions and strict new regimes. Although all year round, I personally can find the fitness world quite an intimidating place. And while it's more important at this time of year to look after ourselves and each other, both inside and outside, it's also more challenging than ever as we try to navigate this disorienting crossroads between optimism and ongoing uncertainty, entering the unknown territory of 2021. So why then, especially at the toughest time of the year, and especially this year, do we tend to punish ourselves with gruelling diets and exercise routines? The names of full moons reveal Native American symbols for a month's defining traits, and January's is the wolf moon. Wolves are well equipped for this brutal time of the year, picking off the weak animals to stay alive. So it makes sense that humans might also have evolved to survive this lean time of year by eating less and making ourselves stronger. It's the month to make or break, sink or swim. January is named after the Roman deity Janus, the god of beginnings, the rising and setting of the sun, transitions and doorways. Depicted with two faces, he looks both back at the past and forwards to the future, as do many of the New Year traditions that we see continuing throughout January across the world. Makar Sankranti is a Hindu festival dedicated to the sun, marking the end of the darkest month on January the 14th when the sun enters Makara, which is the Hindu equivalent of Capricorn, a mythological sea creature that represents river goddesses and sea gods, who are also the guardians of gateways and thresholds. The festival is named and celebrated differently across the Hindu world, with kite flying to appreciate the sunshine and thank the gods, bonfires to get rid of old useless things and make space for change and transformation bathing in sacred rivers to cleanse past sins and exchanging sweets to forget past hostilities and promise to speak sweetly to one another. Meanwhile, many Mahayana Buddhists celebrate New Year on the first full moon, the 28th of January, taking time for meditation and reflection to improve and learn from past mistakes. Also celebrated on this date is the Jewish New Year of Trees, Tu Bishvat, one of four Jewish New Year's days, and the birthday of fruit trees, marking the beginning of the agricultural season in Palestine. It's traditional to eat fruit and nuts, the seeds of which represent new life and potential growth. So against the backdrop of seasonal stories and new starts, I wonder how we in the West might have been going about growing some healthy new habits. 
In an article I read on New Year's resolutions by Yale professor Dr Laurie Santos, host of a podcast called The Happiness Lab, she talked about the fresh start effect, research that's shown that people are more driven to tackle new goals at collective beginnings rather than random times of the year. These shared moments focus our attention on what we really want out of life and can make us feel less weighed down by the past, as if we've been given a blank slate. But if we don't approach our goals wisely, Dr Santos warns, our resolutions can do more harm than good. Often a tough love approach leads us to try and mortify ourselves into better habits. And even though this negative self-talk doesn't feel great, we assume that shaming ourselves is the only way to make self-improvements. But research into the science of happiness says otherwise. People who speak more kindly to themselves and do things that make them feel present, grateful and connected to others are more likely to eat better, exercise more and feel content with their lives. At the start of the year, Balanced Garden launched a full new schedule of online yoga and meditation classes. Jasmine and I were very lucky to welcome an amazing bunch of teachers to the platform, all with uniquely inspiring stories to tell. So I had a chat with one of them, the lovely Elle Daniels, about what a healthy approach to self-improvement might look like. I feel like a lot of people who come to yoga are like, probably struggling with something you know I know who isn't struggling at the moment you know what I mean I feel like if I can be really open about my own experience because I can't like kind of pry into that I can't see into their lives and their experiences and people probably don't want to talk about it but I feel like if I can be open maybe that just opens something up within them just keeping it a bit more real well yeah I guess it's um no one's perfect in that you know, as a yoga teacher, you're, how you put yourself across and everything you show on Instagram and all of that imagery is maybe trying to show people a picture of perfection. I mean, Instagram, love it or hate it, it is kind of, it's quite a useful marketing tool. And, you know, I do quite like to have what I put out look reasonably polished, but within that, I also want to be real but also a lot of the time when I'm kind of showing what I can do that is in a way me celebrating my body not because I think it looks great in a certain way or in a certain pose but just celebrating what it can do and that's for me that's a really big deal because it's for before it was all when I was much younger it was all about liking myself if I weighed a certain amount or just think yeah just it was more like aesthetic whereas now it's more like wow you know my body can do some some quite cool things and that's not to put it on like a hierarchy of like if your body can't bend in this way then it's not but it's just more like what the body can do for us without attaching it to a goal just kind of marveling at you know the human body and how amazing it is but yeah I think it's a balance of like it wants to be reasonably aspirational and like inspiring, but not so much so that it feels like it's excluding anyone. And I think that's kind of the line and it's, and I get it wrong sometimes, but I'm always like, that's what I'm mindful of. Yeah. That's, um, it is, a, it's a fine, a fine line, isn't it? Between 
aspiration and um I don't know uh like it becomes maybe like an exclusive club or you know like a super hyper mobile super skinny like you know but I think what's also good is you know there are lots of different styles of yoga and I do think that there you know there's always going to be an audience for each so I kind of when I see people doing their thing and like doing crazy poses and stuff like and going at like a million miles an hour like I kind of really respect the you know how dedicated they are to working really hard but I think I think it's always got to come back to like the core you know the soul of what yoga is about which is not about acquiring anything from outside and it's you know not buying anything but rather uncovering something that already is within you and it just so happens that here in the west it's doing it through the means of the body and through the poses is quite a big kind of access point an easy access point if you will tell tell us that um a bit about that the philosophy of yoga that you feel is part of your kind of your own philosophy as well or how that's integrated with your own philosophy so my teacher who is a lady called Mia Togo she was like a psychology major before she even started doing yoga let alone teaching it so she kind of she particularly talks a lot about um dealing with shame dealing with your shadow basically and in yoga they talk a lot about you know there's this idea of finding this light within you but I think that can get really misinterpreted because you hear people a lot saying like oh love and light love and light without looking at any of the the shadow side of things and what I love so much about yoga philosophy is um you know you observe the the balance that the the necessary balance of like darkness and light so in the end everybody's supposedly kind of trying to get up to the enlightened stage but in doing that you're constantly working with the kind of um the messiness of the of the prakriti the nature there's just it's always about kind of learning the like how to observe checks and balances and also knowing that like it's a never-ending journey you're not going to kind of do x amount of yoga classes and then just be fine it's some you know you'll 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 enter like a different stage of your life and then you'll need to adjust again so it's that constant um it's what's called svadhyaya it's self-study so you're just constantly re-evaluating re-evaluating and you just learn so much about yourself along the way and it's not always fun um, but you do get, you know, it's helped me so much. It's helped me to overcome so many things like, you know, eating disorder, got, got to a point where I kind of had to stop drinking um, and stop like partying because I kind of thought I could do all of it. And I thought I was just this really fun, high functioning person, but I wasn't. I was like on the outside, but completely spent on the inside, like burned to a crisp. Um, so I apply now that self-study I've kind of well I'm learning that I don't I don't need to do everything all the time and when I was really in my like the thick of my eating disorder I was always making lists of like things I had to do like really quite lofty ones and also just quite I mean it's a mental illness so like it's pretty pretty deep it gets it gets intense let's just say that um but now I just kind of I mean 
for me, it's all about having a yoga practice and it grounds me so much that I kind of know that. And again, I'm really aware of like living a very privileged life when I say this, but it, it keeps me steady and I feel it empowers me to do, to make the right choices. It's, it sounds like a really good um, example of a movement away from a kind of goal oriented, like tunnel vision focused, mm -hmm. um, one directional movement, which a lot of exercise is. Um, I think and 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 a lot of yoga has perhaps become um, because it's fitting in it's being fitted in to a kind of western exercise um, ideology Fitness model yeah. yeah exactly that's a good way of putting it and, um, and, and I've been thinking about this because of it being January and the idea of new year's resolutions and this kind of you know constant like uphill battle that I feel is mm -hmm. often expected of us to that or that we put ourselves on because that's the growth mindset the kind of that's the economic model that has been dominated so so kind of commoditized our own bodies in, in a similar way and mm. I was listening to a podcast the other day with um a woman called Banusha uh, Wijaya Kumar she does a thing called the yoga book club um and it's through yoga international and she goes through um she's she's at the moment it's the Bhagavad Gita so it's like a big old text and she's doing episode by episode and she's kind of relating it to present day social justice but something she said really stuck with me and she said that balance and perfection and not the same thing so like what you might have in your head for like be, being perfect doesn't mean you're going to be able to be balanced so you know like and I think also like people are always looking for a way to almost numb themselves a bit so even like even going towards like an idea of perfection or like working really hard, it's a form of dulling yourself a bit because you're not really, really thinking about the process of what you're going through. You're just so fixated on one end point. And then what happens when you get there? More often than not, you just are like, okay, what's next? And then yeah. you're never really satisfied. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she said balance and perfection are not the same thing. And it really stuck with me. And I just thought it was so such a simple way but makes such perfect sense that you know what you think what you think might be perfect is not necessarily going to leave you in a state of balance no so I guess it like dieting is a good example aiming for perfectionism through complete mm. a complete imbalance when in fact oh. just having a balanced diet is essentially what keeps you healthy and, and well even even now I'll catch myself if I say because I'm I film a lot of pre-recorded content for on on demand even now I'll be watching it back I'll look at my body and I'll be like oh I could be x y and z I'd feel this way if I was maybe a certain amount of pounds lighter and I and I catch my brain literally in the process of evaluating a, a possible diet plan even now like like oh remember that time you didn't eat any carbohydrates maybe you can do that again and then luckily I've managed to get to a point where I can quickly intercept that thought process and be like you were so unhappy and then you also were in a complete chaos when you allowed yourself off that diet because then you just ate everything inside <laughs> it's really interesting like 
you're a stunningly beautiful, perfectly formed human <laughs> being as far as I can see. But obviously we all look for constant areas for improvement, not just in ourselves, in other people, in our spaces, you know, there's a, di- a natural dispen- uh, propensity for doing that. And I guess that's what creativity is and productivity. And, and it's sort of like, where is the where is the line between that it becoming an extreme and a kind of constant dissatisfaction and a and a self-chastisement? What is healthy improvement and unhealthy improvement? I mean, does ex- extremes mm. like I read a Martin Luther quote today because it's Martin Luther King Day, says a lot of, of his quotes going around on Instagram and it said something along Mm -hmm. the lines of we are all extremists the question is which form of extremism do you choose you know it's about making your own healthy boundaries but that's really really hard at the moment because social media you know you deliberately put out like the most kind of polished version of your life and that kind of I think it's so hard for people to have to know like where the boundary is for them because if you're constantly being fed this hyper aspirational reel of life that isn't even real for the person showing it it just plays on people's fear of being less than and then leading them to believe that they can acquire that wholeness through either a purchase or a diet or like a, a career goal when in actual fact if you bring it back to yoga it's actually more about getting to the the root of who you are and uncovering it yeah it's um the fear of being less than and so we try to be more than and we and then we end up being like too much when in fact what's hard the hardest thing to I guess remember to recognize and to really like honor and and believe is that you're enough and I and I guess in that sense it would help to sift out what what is a healthy is a self-improvement is that based on being enough and it not being based on a instead on a on an unworthiness and a and a lack because you you um, made a good point in your I like what you you wrote in your blog that we with with some extremes and addictions it's like we shun some of them and we applaud others drugs alcohol you know unhealthy relationships like those addictions are really bad but exercise work um dieting yeah because it's seen it's all part I mean it, it like it just comes down to like the ideals of capitalism I suppose it's all about making the most money achieving like being perfect and and no matter the what it's the harm it's causing others and also to yourself internally so yeah I used to kind of try and work my way out of feeling things so like I obviously the over exercising was a massive part of like what I put myself through when I was younger and also you do, you know, when you when you exercise intensely, you do actually get an endorphin high. So that you could argue that that is a bit of a like an altered state for your mind. Um, but the trouble is, is just like any other addiction, it's never enough. So you keep increasing it until and then it starts to, you know, there are people who like really sadly. And again, I was one of these people who would 
favor going to the gym over having over like a really important or really nice social event so it's it's not all that different in reality like you know if you see someone who's become addicted to drugs they end up falling away from their family their friends and so on but in reality when someone's selling their soul for their work you know some I've got I have friends who work in the city who I mean not now obviously but they'd be at their desk at like 7 30 a.m and there until midnight or later and yeah and again and yeah just whatever you do in life like whether it's yoga or a new like a different fitness pursuit or something else it it can only work well if you come at it from a place of already feeling full I try and affirm that for people I think when I teach I really try and use um I try really hard to use language that doesn't suggest any kind of um being hard on yourself or like so that what then what happens is people hopefully move into like a more mindful state and they're still working really hard they're still getting fitter they're still getting more flexible you know they're still getting all those good things I still like to teach a really strong class you know but um but they're not it's not just that it's something deeper um I like you talk as well in your in that blog which I'll I'll include in the in the show notes in the blogcast um I've, I can't read my own writing. Steren Su- Sucha? Steren? Steren Sucha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great one. Effort yeah, and ease. Mm, so the, so the, it's one of the yoga sutras. And um, it it actually, the full thing is uh, Stira Sukha Asanam. So it that literally translates to, is there's a degree of like effort and then there's also an ease in every pose. BKS Iyengar, and he was a man who was, you know, standing on his head well into his the last years of his life. But he said famously that he had not mastered mountain pose. And that's the pose when you're literally standing at the front of your mat. Whilst you might think standing still, it may be easy physically. It actually requires a lot of attention to detail in the mind. So it's you often see people like going into a pose that they find easy and they kind of switch off a bit and that way they're not they're not applying the necessary effort that matches the ease that they're feeling does that make sense it does make sense I was um as you were talking about it I'm sort of thinking about how this is reflected in nature and how if you look at um, a plant or even a blade of grass or you know or a tree which you know there's a lot of growth and a lot going on behind the scenes to to grow and be steady and yet be flexible enough not to break and so we're I guess if you're standing and you're not really thinking about it and you're not standing with an, like an integrity with an integrity, integrity with a kind of centeredness with a you know um actually activating and thinking about your points of balance then someone can just knock you over that would be easy and you don't want to become and I think this is really relevant for like you know the the kind of attitude we can take on of like push 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 and hard like go really hard for things because what will happen is if there's like, if you become so over hardened, if you become so steady that there's no like give, as you said, you can end up like just falling flat. Like there's a really like a good spot between the two, which I think the best way I could describe it is resilience. And that's not just in the body, but in the mind as well. Like being able to be strong enough to weather the like the storms that come 
but then also like not being so hardened that you can't like feel your way through them yeah to be soft soft enough um to to be moved with the with the wind <laughs> I mean such cl- talking in pure cliches but I love yeah, it yeah no real cliches <laughs> but you know that's what that, that's why they're cliches they're great they're so easy everyone understands yeah. them I I also had a similar journey to you and probably like you say a lot of people who come to yoga of, of essentially just burning out being like constantly everywhere worked in the music industry I was like um you know it was a party a lot of the time and and there was a lot of reserve energy being you know that wasn't that wasn't there being being burnt and I I ended up in a pretty pretty bad way and one of the yoga teachers who's now teaching through Balance Garden Jessie who's a really old friend of mine she designed a yoga sequence for me this was about five years ago and it started to level me out started to get me to realize that constantly going and doing and and numbing and that that kind of not even low level say mid-level anxiety to high level anxiety that was always there Mm. and always trying to be kind of kind of overtaken by some other feeling and just learning to be still and I think it's like also because the poses are like designed to work quite deeply on your nervous system there's a correlation between like stress and what gets stuck in your connective tissue your fascia so stretching out making space slowing down is really really important whatever you do whether that's you know vinyasa yoga or whether it's running or not Elle teaches a lunchtime yoga flow on Tuesdays from 12.45 to 1.45pm GMT. It's online for now, as are all our classes, and you can find out more about all of them at balancegarden.co.uk forward slash yoga. With different styles for all moods, bodies and abilities taught every day of the week, hopefully you will find something that supports you and at the same time you will be supporting us and the podcast. But we do want to make sure yoga classes are available to everyone, so if you're struggling financially, please get in touch about a concession. Now here is my good friend Teresa Gifford reading her poem, Self Portrait. It's always been about the hair and the squint, the squint that everyone else loves, everyone who doesn't have one, that is, like dating websites which are fun for those who are not single and can laugh at the man with a train track in his garden or the one with 50 ties who smelt of lynx and mousy despair whose wife had left him with the dog. Campfires and cooking pots, smoke curled hair, hunting for twigs to light the storm kettle. Jade green morning swims, coffee, bacon sandwich, ripe figs and wet wool, soft chattering chickens, patter of rain on canvas. Harajuku girl, green and woman, embrace me, embrace the base. Not much interested in needlework or fish, has never owned a handbag or worn high heels, sings to her plants, loves a pint, Earl Grey and a ghost. 
wears bluntstone boots and woolly socks from Tibet, knitted by a walnut-skinned woman in the market in Lhasa. If you pick up the shell on her desk and hold it to your ear, you can hear the sea. Thank you for sharing that with us, Teresa, and thanks to her son and my friend Lucas for the recording. You can see a picture of both of them on the blogcast, along with links to all the sources featured in this episode, including one of my blogs, Falling in Love During Lockdown, Part 2, which I'm going to read for you now. One shared ritual of life in lockdown is the now-sanctified, officially-sanctioned daily walk. During the spring, in the corner of south-west London where I grew up and first fell in love during lockdown, I took my daily dose of outdoors on the plains of Clapham Common, its usual role as a giant green roundabout temporarily suspended, in the meadows and walled garden of Brockwell Park or the maze of Myatt's Field, occasionally venturing further afield to the distant terrains of Battersea Park or grandeur of St James's. When we attempted to return to normal, I returned to the opposite corner of the city, moving back into the Walthamstow house I'd been sharing before lockdown. To get a hit of the heady summer air, I'd pop into the picturesque William Morris garden, wade through the long grass of the marshes, or follow the canal east into a post-industrial wilderness. If I really wanted to get lost, the flats of Wanstead awaited, leading into the endless escape of Epping Forest. I loved my lone ventures before Covid too, stealing a day, weekend or however many months I could muster, but really I'd rarely leave my own little world. The destination was just somewhere to more easily immerse myself in it. I'd stand in front of a phenomenal view and barely see it. Long train journeys were my favourite, hours to viably spend staring out of the window at the contents of my mind as they sped past. I interpreted mindfulness as an attempt to wield some kind of superior authority over the mind, like that of an oppressive dictator over unruly peasantry and wilder people. Not usually one to embrace authority, the harder I'd try to stop the free movement of my mind the harder it would rebel, perhaps even relishing in the trespass it found itself being forced to commit. When I was 20, I went travelling in South India with my boyfriend at the time. Starting the trip in Tamil Nadu, we visited the temple town, Tiruvannamalai, home of the Arunachala Hill, where many saints, sages and disciples have pilgrimage to spend a long self-imposed lockdown. Enlightened tourists like us can visit a cave where the guru Ramana Maharshi spent most of his life in a state of such transcendence that his own feet were nibbled at by ants. Following my companion into the cave, I saw him immediately assume an immaculate meditation stance. I, on the other hand, couldn't get comfy. I needed to blow my nose. It was cold and musty smelling. My feet needed a scratch, so I moved them. Out on the hillside, I watched the trees and monkeys swing from their branches. I felt the sun on my face, 
I decided that I had no intention to devote myself to the rejection of all earthly pleasures. In fact, I was going to devote my life to them. Maybe I missed the point, but I definitely didn't fancy being on a spiritual tourism trip. I couldn't walk the walk or talk the talk. But there were many other ways in which India enlightened me, with the stench of its shit-filled waterways and enchanting incense and spices, the sights of its forest floors covered in rubbish, carved temples, gridlocked tuk-tuks skirting around cows, and the use of turmeric to cure anything, all things living and dying. Yet despite setting my intention on Arunachala Hill to devote myself to all earthly pleasures, as often as I've stopped to appreciate them, I've more often not. I was somewhere else, lost in a possibility, a plan, an idea. Rather than seeing what was in front of me, I saw what wasn't. Call it daydreaming or what you will. But dreams only have one owner at a time, and that is why dreamers are lonely, said Irma Bombeck. Lockdown forced me to notice the world around me. There was no other option. During my daily walks, I realised that it's the attention you give to what is there that distracts the mind from thoughts of what isn't. Seems obvious, right? Much too simple. But we humans have a tendency to overcomplicate things. Taking centre stage, the new leaves dazzled green as they danced all over the bright blue sky and flowers on their best frocks, refusing to be ignored. The more I looked, the more I could see. The more I saw, the less I wanted to miss. Then I started seeing myself as part of it. And so the more sense I started to make as just another living, breathing, growing, dying being. And that sense of belonging made it less tempting to retreat. The challenge wasn't to wrestle my mind into tranquility or travel further away to escape it. It was as simple as stepping outside and looking up. Instead of seeking new landscapes, to see with new eyes... Yes, it's colder now and darker outside. I'm as alone as I've ever been, but the least lonely. I'd often find myself feeling isolated in a crowd because I wasn't truly there with everyone else. I could hold conversations without really talking, look at someone but not see them. I can't do that now, not since all this space appeared between us. Now I'm not lonely or crowded. Now I find company in the sky and in the trees or on the water. Now I see you and I see me too. As the sun begins to come up stronger, shining its light brighter and longer each day, it takes my mind back to memories of warmer times and I find myself starting to look forward to those to come, frightening as the future can feel. But although the past is a more familiar place now, it wasn't then. I'm still learning the hardest lessons it had to teach me and tasting the sweetness of its most delicious treats. I wouldn't want to leave those behind. 
what made me who I am today and aspire to be tomorrow, painful or pleasurable as they may have been. Once, sitting on a rock overlooking the sea, its waves sparkling orange in the setting sun with my friend Naomi, she told me how watching a sunrise or sunset reminded her that there are constant beginnings and constant endings. Or indeed, as I said, that there are none. To be frozen in time, stuck in the cold of the past, refusing to move forwards, is surely no better than being burned by the heat made by running too fast into the future, melting from exhaustion before there's even a chance to celebrate winning the race. So maybe that's not winning. Maybe that's climate chaos inside all of us as well as around us. But maybe there's a sweet spot in between. The threshold between the door to the past and the door to the future, where we stand right now at the entrance to the new year. Where the impulse might be to get past it quickly, rush through it and out the other side, but where there is a strength in staying, holding steady between the opposing push and pull of the past and the future. The motivation to move and make changes can come in many forms, positive and negative. Regret, resentment, jealousy even, all reveal potential for progress and purpose if treated with respect and used constructively. We cannot hope to abolish them, but we can choose how we treat ourselves when they come around, whether as a force for care and creativity or criticism and chastisement. As the queen of the moment, Amanda Gorman describes as the hill we climb, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge our union with purpose. Thank you for listening to the Balanced Garden podcast, which is written and produced by me, Tiger Lily Raphael, and co-produced by me, Jasmine Pradhan. Thank you to our guests, Elle Daniels and Teresa Gifford. You can find pictures of them and links to everything featured in this episode, as always, in the blogcast at balancegarden.co.uk, including the soundtrack, Yes Mike, from the Manasseh Meets Praise LP produced by my father, Nick Manasseh, and licensed by Roots Garden Records. I hope you found this month's podcast helpful, and if you'd like to, you can support it while supporting yourself with online yoga classes or through our Patreon page. I'll be back next month, so until then, live well and enjoy. Balanced Garden is a well-living space that bridges the world inside and outside. We offer seasonal reflections, recipes and practices through a podcast, blog, yoga and meditation to support healthy relationships with our bodies, minds, each other, nature and all the spaces in between.